Hi, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante. And this episode is about further information and further lines from the second canto of Inferno. In fact, we're at line 76 through 114. We've come a bit of a ways. I just want to remind you before I read the bit for today that Virgil has met Dante and set him off on the journey, but Dante has a moment of cowardice, a moment uh, where his will fails him. He doesn't know why he should be taking this journey. And Virgil is here to tell him the story of why. And Virgil says that he was, if you remember from last time, among the souls suspended, which is his weird circumlocution for being in limbo. And there a lady came to him and told him that he has to get going and help this pilgrim. And so we pick it up. Lady of Virtue, through whom alone humankind goes beyond what is contained in the smallest circle of heaven, your command pleases me so much that instant obedience would seem tardy. You have to do no more than reveal your desire. But tell me the reason you don't guard yourself when you descend to this central point from the expansive place where you long to be. Since you have such a deep yearning to know, she replied, I will briefly tell you why I'm not afraid to come here. You should fear only those things that have the power to harm you. Other things, not so much. Those don't cause fear. I am made by God, by his grace, so that your pain doesn't touch me, nor can these flames hurt me. In heaven, There is a gracious lady, moved with a great deal of pity for the one I'm sending you to. In fact, firm decrees have been broken by her. This lady summoned Lucy and said, Your faithful one needs you now, and I turn him over to your hand. Lucy, the enemy of all cruelty, got up and came to where I sat with the ancient Rachel and said, Beatrice, Truly praiseworthy of God, why do you not aid the one who left the common crowd because of his full love for you? Do you not hear his sorrowful anguish or see how he is beset by death in a flood that swells larger than the sea? No one on earth was ever so fast to gain an advantage or escape from loss as I was when those words were spoken. I came down here from my blessed throne, placing my trust in your noble speech, which honors you and everyone who pays attention to it. Okay, just to be clear, in this passage, I'm going to read it to you one more time, but in this passage, Virgil starts by telling Beatrice, you know, I'm going to do exactly what you want to do, but I have a question first. And then he asks his question, and Beatrice both answers the question and launches into the story of how she got here. That somewhere up in heaven, a lady came to, we'll get to this in a minute, Lucy, St. Lucy, and St. Lucy came to Beatrice, and Beatrice came to Virgil. <laughs> it's, a, it's, like a, it's like a game of telephone. So let me try the whole passage one more time. This is my rough translation of it into English. Lady of Virtue. Through whom alone humankind goes beyond what is contained in the smallest circle of heaven, your command pleases me so much that instant obedience would seem tardy. You have to do no more than reveal your desire. 
but tell me the reason you don't guard yourself when you descend to this central point from the expansive place where you long to be. Since you have such a deep yearning to know, she replied, I will briefly tell you why I am not afraid to come here. You should fear only those things that have the power to harm you. Other things, not so much. Those don't cause fear. I am made by God, by his grace, so that your pain doesn't touch me, nor can these flames hurt me. In heaven, there is a gracious lady moved with a great deal of pity for the one I'm sending you to. In fact, firm decrees have been broken by her. This lady summoned Lucy and said, Your faithful one needs you now, and I turn him over to your hand. Lucy, the enemy of all cruelty, got up and came to where I sat with the ancient Rachel and said, Beatrice, truly praiseworthy of God, why do you not aid the one who left the common crowd because of his full love for you? Do you not hear his sorrowful anguish or see how he is beset by death in a flood that swells larger than the sea? No one on earth was ever so fast to gain an advantage or escape from loss as I was, When those words were spoken, I came down here from my blessed throne, placing my trust in your noble speech, which honors you and everyone who pays attention to it. Okay, here's an interesting thing. This is a poem about Dante the Pilgrim. I've made a big deal already about Dante the poet writing about Dante the Pilgrim. It's Dante's poem. You'll notice in this entire passage that I read There's no Dante. They're talking about him in the third person, but he's not present. This is a conversation, and this canto has become a conversation between Virgil and Beatrice. And I've already explained to you that they are in a bit of rhetorical gamesmanship, rhetoric. In other words, not just grammar, but rhetoric, language serving the purpose of something, language as a call to action, language as an argument winner. So they're in this game of rhetoric with each other, medieval rhetoric. It's important to remember that this is a medieval poem. We may be on the cusp of the Renaissance. We're close. We're going to see how close we are soon. And we're going to hear some vague lurkings of the Renaissance running around in the poem later on. Uh, There's a reference later on where uh, basically the line is something like, it used to be all Cimabue and now it's all Giotto, referring to two painters. And it's kind of right there a cross between a a solidly medieval painter, Cimabue, and Giotto, which is early Renaissance art. But that's all to come. We're on a poem that's kind of on the cusp of the Renaissance, but it's important to remember it is a medieval poem, which means that there's going to be dissonances in here that you may not be comfortable with and that I'm not comfortable with. And this is a passage with some dissonances in it. Medievals, they lived in a quite dissonant world. You and I, post age of reason, post scientific revolution, post industrial revolution, post technological revolution, We live in a pretty linear world. We live in a world in which things are supposed to cohere and be concise and follow from point A to point B. Evils, remember, don't hold to this notion of linear rationality. They're more comfortable, many of the artists, even Dante, with things that are strange, that things that catch the eye. In fact, they look for those very things. Let's look for them in this passage. First Virgil, lady of virtue. So he's complimenting her. They're in their rhetorical game. 
They're playing that still that strategy with her. He's already told her that, you know, she's so noble and beautiful, he'll do anything for her. So he's further complimenting her. Lady of Virtue, through whom alone humankind goes beyond what is contained in the smallest circle of heaven. That's difficult. That just has a little bit of weirdness to it. It's questionable why. Let me clear up something first. Remember, this is a Ptolemaic universe. It is not a Copernican universe. The smallest, so what does that mean? Remember, the planets swing around on spheres, and the Earth is at the center of everything, and the sun is just another planet that swings around on these crystalline spheres that run around the Earth, which is the center of everything. So the smallest circle of heaven is the moon. It's the first circle of the heavens on which a planet, the moon, they think of the moon as a planet, on which a planet is suspended. So he says, Lady Virtue, through whom alone humankind goes beyond what is contained in the smallest circle of heaven. In other words, you're how we get beyond the first circle of heaven, the moon, and on up into paradise. She is? Seriously? I don't think so. Uh, Virgil is wrong. Virgil's wrong through Christian theology. Beatrice is not through whom alone humankind goes beyond what is contained in the smallest circle of heaven. Uh, any medieval would tell you that that's Jesus or maybe Mary. Uh, Mary's not quite the intercessor that she is in modern Catholicism. But anybody would tell you it's not Beatrice, who is <laughs> a fictional creation in the poem. Not even a real saint. At least Lucy, which we get to, is a real saint. Beatrice? Is he flattering her? Uh, maybe. Does he not understand Christian theology? Maybe. After all, here he is sitting in hell, in his sphere of hell, limbo, his circle, and here comes this radiant, blessed form from heaven to say, you got to go save this guy that's stuck in a dark wood. Maybe he's just not seen enough of the blessed to know that she's just one of the blessed. Maybe it's Virgil's limited sight. Maybe, also, he doesn't understand Christian theology. Maybe, also, he's flattering her. Is she susceptible to flattery? We'll find out. Maybe Dante is a little bit too much in love with Beatrice. All of that is part of a tough three lines that are distinctly dissonant, not because of the smallest circle of heaven, the moon, that's pretty standard Ptolemaic talk, but through whom alone humankind goes beyond what is contained in the smallest circle of heaven? No, that's not Beatrice, at least in Christian theology. Your command, Virgil says, pleases me so much that instant obedience would seem tardy. In other words, yeah, you're so noble and so beautiful and so ladylike that I'm going to do anything you command me to do just like a good knight would. You have to do no more than reveal your desire. Okay, got it, got it. But, and there's the next word, but. And that's a big but. But. Tell me the reason you don't guard yourself when you descend to this central point from the expansive place where you long to be. Boy, he's really talking round, right? This central point is hell. Okay, let me just explain something and make sure that we get it. The earth is at the center of the universe, and it is 
far from the heaven, which is you've got to go up all the spheres of heaven, the moon, Venus, the sun, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, the fixed stars. There's all these spheres that are rotating around this central point of the Earth. And then above all of that is the what? Will, we will come to find out, is the Empyrean, the place where God lives, the heaven of heavens. So the earth is farthest of all the places in the universe from the giant space, because the spheres get bigger and bigger and bigger, the giant space is, that is the heavens of heavens. But more to the point, hell is inside earth. So hell is a cave, as you will discover, inside earth, and hell is the farthest place from heaven. So you descend to this central point of the universe. The center, the very middle of the universe is hell. We're going to talk a lot more about that in episodes to come. If you don't think that affects how you see the universe, <laughs> I got news for you. The very central point of the universe is hell. But more intriguingly... Notice that Virgil seems to doubt Beatrice. Interestingly, when Virgil appears to Dante, Dante does not doubt Virgil. Dante doesn't say, wait a minute, how'd you get here, necessarily. They kind of get around to it, which is here. But that's not how Dante starts out. But notice that Virgil has flattered her, but now he stops. And in fact, he's going to put her through her paces. And she's going to answer him. So let's move on to her answer. Since you have such a deep yearning to know, Beatrice says, I will briefly tell you why I'm not afraid to come here. You should fear only those things that have the power to harm you. Other things, not so much. Those don't cause fear. I am made by God, by his grace, so that your pain doesn't touch me nor can these flames hurt me. Wow, so she is not bothered by anything in hell because she is already bound into the grace of God. In fact, you have to read the whole comedy to know that, to put it bluntly, the blessed don't give a damn about the damned. And as we will find out as we walk through Inferno, the damned only care about the damned. <laughs> they only care about themselves. In fact, the hallmark of the damned is that they can't see anything but themselves. They are so sunk into themselves. So she basically, she says, since you want to know, I, I, I'm not hurt by anything here. You know, you're dead in hell and it's kind of bad down here, but it has nothing to do with me. I'm, I don't fear it because it, doesn't, it can't touch me. It can't hurt me. I am made by God by his grace so that your pain doesn't touch me, nor can these flames hurt me. Now, this is a moment of hesitation. So she's saying, you know, hey, I'm down here in hell with you. and You know what hell is. It's all the flames. So these flames can't hurt me. Okay, that's great. And you probably should blow right past that unless you had read the comedy. We will find out that the one thing that's true about Limbo, where Virgil is, is that there are no flames. There are people burning up in hell. We'll get to them. But what is she talking about? There's several options here. Let me give you several options to explain these flames. Either Beatrice 
doesn't really see Virgil where he is. And that's a possibility. I mean, she just told you that none of this affects me. None of this touches me. So maybe she didn't see him, really. She, she, she's just unaware of where he is. And, you know, hell's flames. So well, these flames don't hurt me. You know, it's kind of a general shorthand for talking about hell. But she didn't actually see his position in limbo because she doesn't really care about him except as a useful tool. Maybe. Or two. They're somewhere else, not in limbo. It's a possibility that somehow she has called Virgil out of the place in limbo where he is amongst those suspended and that they're standing somewhere else. It seems weird to say that like I've had to make something up to make the text make sense because it's not in the text. So I never have a a moment in which in which Beatrice calls Virgil out of limbo to some other place to have a conversation with him. So it seems weird. Or there's a third option, and this might be it. Dante the poet is just nodding off. Dante the poet just doesn't remember that limbo doesn't have any flames, or at this point when he's writing these lines, he hasn't yet figured out exactly what limbo looks like. Or he knows it, but he's kind of forgotten it, and he's just using a shorthand for flames. Or it's intentional. He's using a shorthand for flames because, you know, I'm just talking to you about hell, uh, reader. And I just, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get to what it's all really like. Okay, moving on to the next speaker. Beatrice continues, but now she continues with the speech of others. She starts now to tell the story of how she got here. In heaven, she says, there is a gracious lady. It seems, and every commentator says now, that this is the Virgin Mary. There is a gracious lady moved with a great deal of pity for the one I'm sending you to. In fact, firm decrees have been broken by her. I mean, who else could break the decrees of heaven to send the blessed down into hell to try to rescue somebody except the Virgin Mary? And it seems logical to think that this is the Virgin Mary just from the way it's worded. But believe it or not, the first 270 years after the comedy was written, there are commentaries already being written about Dante's master work, and no one has proposed that this is the Virgin. It's not until 1570 that Castelfetro actually makes the supposition that this is the Virgin Mary. Now everybody thinks this, but I should just point to you that in the first 250 years of the poem's interpretation, nobody thought this was the Virgin Mary. There are lots of lots of ideas of who this is. Once it's posited that this lady in heaven who who can break the firm decrees of heaven is the Virgin, once that happens, everybody kind of accepts it. But it's funny. Not everybody accepted it at first. This tells you the opacity of the comedy and how difficult it can be to pin down certain interpretations of this medieval work. Let's go on with what she says. This lady, we're assuming now the virgin, summoned Lucy, St. Lucy, 4th century Christian martyr, whose name means light. She will appear exactly three times in the comedy. She'll occur once in the Inferno, once in Purgatorio, and once in Paradiso. It's important to see that. Because it's part of the overall structure that is already happening around the comedy itself. This lady summoned Lucy, Saint Lucy, and maybe perhaps Dante's patron saint. Because this lady says, your faithful one to Lucy now needs you. And I turn him over to your hand. A lot of people make this out that Lucy is Dante's patron saint just because of this passage. 
I don't know that there's any other evidence except this passage for that. Maybe Dante wanted Lucy to be his patron saint, and it certainly seems to indicate that, but I don't know that in real life that was the case. Beatrice goes on, Lucy, the enemy of all cruelty, interesting, because Dante is in a bad place in the dark wood, got up and came to where I sat with the ancient Rachel. Rachel, a figure from Torah, from the Old Testament. Rachel and her sister Leah, who Jacob worked for to become their, to become their husband. Uh, and he married both of them. But in medieval iconography, in medieval symbolism, Rachel is a symbol of the contemplative life, and Leah is a symbol of the active life. Just take that on face for me right now. Uh, we'll get to more of this much later, but Beatrice is sitting with the archetype, the symbol of the contemplative, quiet, monastic life. Not the active life of doing good, but the contemplative life. And Lucy comes to her and says, and now we have words, from Lucy's mouth. We had the virgin. You realize that those words, your faithful one now needs you and I turn him over to your hand, are in the virgin's mouth if that lady is the virgin. And now we have Lucy's words. This is getting incredibly complicated. And said, Beatrice, truly praiseworthy of God, why do you not aid the one who left the common crowd because of his love for you? The common crowd. A tough bit, and I'm going to Hold just a second to say something else. Notice how complicated the structure is here. Dante the poet is writing about Dante the pilgrim, who is remembering Virgil's words, who is quoting Beatrice, who is quoting Lucy, who is <laughs> who is quoting the Virgin. That quote from the Virgin or the gracious lady in heaven, your faithful one now needs you, Beatrice doesn't hear that, so clearly she's been told that by Lucy. So Dante the poet is writing about Dante the pilgrim, who is writing about what Virgil said, that Beatrice said, that Lucy said, that the gracious lady said. In modern, in the modern world, we would immediately flag that as a moment in which we can't trust the narrative. Oh, it's unreliable. Look at that. Nobody could do that much game of telephone and it'd be right. In the comedy, different. This is a medieval recording, medieval recording of speech, and it is not necessarily to be distrusted, not in the modern way. So when she says to Beatrice, when Lucy says to Beatrice, why do you not come to the aid of the one who left the common crowd because of his full love for you, we have to take that at face value. What is the common crowd? Or a better translation of those words from the Italian might be the vulgar horde. In Canto 1, Dante doesn't appear to have chosen this part. He wakes up in a dark wood, if you remember, and finds himself there. He comes to himself. But this seems to indicate a choice. Why do you come to the aid of the one who left the common crowd because of his full love for you? That seems like he made a choice. Common crowd, vulgar horde. In what way has he left them? How has he left the common crowd? Is it because Dante's in exile, which he is? Is it because he stopped writing, and this is what I think, silly love poetry, which is what Dante had been writing, and is finally writing about something substantial, finally writing a theological work, 
that's not my thought. That's a thought from a great Dante scholar, Francesco Mazzoni, posited that this bit is from uh, some way that Dante has come away from what everyone else is writing and has started to write real stuff. Beatrice goes on. Do you not hear his sorrowful anguish? Well, I should say Lucy goes on in Beatrice's telling of it. Do you not hear his sorrowful anguish or see how he is beset by death in a flood that swells larger than the sea? What? He was in a wood. How is he in a flood that swells larger than the sea? Now, do you do remember that that first metaphor is that he comes up on the shore like somebody who has just escaped a flood and gasping for breath? Remember, I spent a lot of time on that. Is this a reference to that metaphor? In which case, Lucy's referring to Dante's metaphoric state, not his actual state. Whatever it is, it's very ornate. In fact, we could argue, and I would argue, that this is like the high style. This is that very high, ornate, elaborate poetry that is elliptical and difficult to interpret. In other words, this is what Dante's left. He's left this kind of speech that Lucy is presenting for us right now, He's left the common crowd who writes in overly flowery medieval love poetry in overflowery style because of his full love for you. And then we get an example of it. Classical, metaphoric, difficult language. Notice, too, that in this, in what's happening, while Beatrice cannot feel Virgil's pain, she apparently can feel Dante's pain. Beatrice, after Lucy has stopped, says, No one on earth was ever so fast to gain an advantage or escape from loss as I was when those words were spoken. Get it? Clear rhetoric. Clear call to action. It is words that have affected something, that have caused something. The very basis of rhetoric. In other words, Lucy used her rhetoric right. And I got up from where I would rather be. I'd, after all, I'd rather be sitting amongst the blessed up in heaven, right? And I have made my way down here to the flames to talk to you. I came down here from my blessed throne. Who wants to leave that? Placing my trust. Intriguing. Beatrice has to trust Virgil. Placing my trust in your noble speech. Palare honesto. Your noble speech. It's already been called his polished speech. It's now called his noble speech. I'm putting my trust in your high style, which honors you and everyone who pays attention to it. She has to, Beatrice has to trust Virgil. Why? Where's God? Where's the Virgin? Why must she trust Virgil? Must she trust Virgil because Dante is still addicted to the more ornate high style? Because she has to speak Dante's rhetoric to him? And because Dante, the previous love poet, writes or has written 
before in a high style. Is that why she needs to trust Virgil's rhetoric? Is that the only language that Dante can hear at this point? He can't hear the common language. He can't hear the low style that is direct, accessible, and in the common tongue. But he can only hear Virgilian language. Is that why Beatrice has to trust Virgil? Because why doesn't she just go to Dante and help him? Why does she put her trust in Virgil? Big questions. Questions that don't have easy answers. Questions that you can think more about. Why would the blessed need to trust a classical poet to lead someone on a journey across the universe? You have to use what works, even when you're amongst the redeemed. I'm not going to read this passage again. I'm going to just let it sit. I think I've beat it practically to death. I'm going to let it sit and say that we have engaged in the fullest extent of the rhetorical battle. And in the next episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante, we're going to finish off Canto 2 and we're going to come back to Dante. And Dante is actually going to be able to uh, voice himself. He seems to have fallen out of our discourse. And we've just been talking about Virgil and the Virgin and Beatrice and Lucy. And where's Dante? He's coming back. I'm Mark Scarborough. Join me for the next episode and the the conclusion of Canto 2 of Inferno on the next Walking with Dante.